with our stories through Elijah and Elisha. Um, we use the term stories. Let me just point out, you cannot have history without stories. This stuff is real. This is not fiction, just so you're aware. All right, so covering from uh, the last few weeks, we had some information about how we have heard from God and how the power of God came down and how God called out idolatry, injustice, challenged the people to repent. The pattern, you know the pattern, Israel does evil, they repent, God acts justly, God brings his message, they do better, and they go back to evil. It sounds a lot like our children sometimes, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like our childhood sometimes, doesn't it? Now, I'll, I'll confess. I, I would always tell my, my wife at times, I was a good kid. Of course, compared to my brothers and sisters, I was a really good kid. But there were times I didn't do exactly right either. So, um, But also understand that Elijah had that power-packed ministry. Elisha, of course, had the compassionate ministry. Now, I want you to understand that there are going to be some parallels that I'm going to show today that are not just lessons to be learned from what happened back then, but lessons from what happened also in Jesus' time and what happens in our time. So the title today, of course, is Elisha Speaks in a Time of War. Now you think, war. Well, let's bring up a warrior to speak today. Okay, here I am. The, you know what? There actually was one sermon several months ago where I did not even mention one time that I uh, served in the United States Marine Corps. There actually, it happened. It really did. Once. Don't expect it again. Okay, so let me give you some quotes from some famous warriors. We'll start out with our Star Wars reference. Because it's true, wars do not make one's great, anyone great. Wars oftentimes make someone dead. So bear that in mind. As much as a warrior is ready for war, a warrior does prefer peace. So going on, we have uh, Gunnery Sergeant Dan Daly. Come on, you SOBs, do you want to live forever? Which led to one of his two medals of honor. There are only two Marines who ever won that twice. Then we have another one. Eleven alive, need small boat. Now, for those of you young people who do not understand what that means, I implore you to read the story of John F. Kennedy before he became a politician. And when he served in World War II and got his PT boat shot out from under him, it was a crew of 13. Two were killed in that. And he saved everyone else's lives through his leadership. That 11 alive need small boat was carved with his knife on a coconut. And it was given to one of the locals to go out and find the friendlies to bring them back. It's an important quote, at least in my book. So every once in a while, you have to quote yourself. Kick the tires, light the fires. That was what we would say when it was ready to launch our fighter jets. Kick the tires being, here's your pre-flight. Tires are kicked. Now get on board. Crank them up. So how many of you like to quote yourself? Okay, I admire your honesty. The rest of you, I know better. So how about another quote? General James Norman Mattis, be polite, be professional, but have a plan to kill everyone you meet. 
He did actually say that. And then, of course, there's another one that I think is for business people where he said, PowerPoint makes us stupid. <laughs> and, and here I am using a PowerPoint slide. But he did indeed say that. But Elisha, speaking in time of war, what did he say? He said, bring me a harp. A harp in a time of war? Well, let's get into the scripture and we'll read on. 2 Kings chapter 3, turn in your iPads, iPhones, Android users, I'll pray for you. Paper scrollers, whatever you like. Turn in your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 3. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stones of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. So apparently Joram did learn some of the lessons that Ahab had encountered in Mount Carmel. But it clearly wasn't enough. Now let that be a lesson that repentance means turning away. Not turning a little bit away, turning away. Okay? Make that distinction. It's also interesting to note that of all the kings of Israel and Judah, read through this from a historical standpoint when you get the chance, only kings that had done right in the eyes of the Lord were the kings of Judah. All the kings of the northern kingdom, Samaria, had all done evil. Not a one did right in the eyes of the Lord. They were all from Judah. So carrying on, verse 4. Now Mesha, the king of Moab, raised sheep. And he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. Now let me set the record straight here something. Extortion in the name of the Lord is still extortion. Murder in the name of the Lord is still murder. You're thinking, well, who would murder in the name of the Lord? I'm not going to get into things like abortion clinic bombings. But I will tell you that if you do something that is sinful in the name of the Lord, it is sinful. Just want to point that out. So another thing to note here that the lambs that were brought for sacrifice were supposed to be raised, read through book of Exodus, supposed to be raised by the people who were making the sacrifice. Thus, the whole sacrifice part. They were not to be provided through confiscation. In fact, if you think back in Jesus' day when he saw that people were doing the buying and the selling and the extorting in the temple, what did he do? He didn't break out a sword. He broke out a whip. And he drove them out and said, you're not going to make my house a house of thieves. So let's try to make sure that we are doing things not just for the name of the Lord, but we're doing things right for the Lord. Verse 5, but after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at the time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go out with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. 
through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? Going round about seven times, that sound familiar? Okay. Don't do things that you think are God's way in your own way. Let that be another lesson to you. Just because something worked previously doesn't mean God is going to do the same thing. All right? In fact, if you look at the miracles of Jesus Christ, even though many of them were similar, they all had different things happening around them. So be careful about that. Don't necessarily have to repeat everything the same way. And oh, by the way, this isn't Jericho and Joshua's time. Don't try that. You know, I'm also going to point out something. And this is not just for you young people, but I want you young people to pay attention here. Be careful of the company you keep. If you are going to be the righteous king of Judah, be careful about hanging out with the evil king of Israel and his buddy, the evil king of Edom. You are known by the company you keep. You are going to be identified with them. And they're going to say, well, hmm, have you seen them together? Be careful of that. The Lord didn't necessarily put them in the desert, by the way. The Lord doesn't necessarily put you in your desert. Sometimes he does. Sometimes there's a lesson to be learned in your desert. Whether it is self-inflicted or whether God has put you there, anointed you to be there, such as he did with Jesus where he said, go out into the desert 40 days, you're going to fast, you're going to pray, you're not going to eat anything you are going to connect with me. There are going to be times when God ordains a desert time in your life. There are also going to be times in your life where you put yourself in the desert. But either way, the point there is God can still provide for you if you turn to him. And you look for the lesson behind it. I heard people say, well, you should never ask God why. Yes, you should. God, why am I here? so that I can learn what you have for me to know. God, why am I here? Did I do something wrong to get here? God, why am I here? Who is it that you want me to reach out to? Or who is about to reach out to me so that I can know that when somebody says, hey, we need to talk, that that person has been ordained by God to be right there in your life at that time. So not only is it right to ask God why, it is expected of you to ask God why. Just do it in the right context. Verse 11. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire to the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elijah, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elisha. Now, I could, I could preach for months on just that one verse there. But I want to point something out that I think is often overlooked. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. There is no small task in the kingdom of heaven. None whatsoever. I will not ask you to raise your hand if you are one of the ones cleaning the church. I will not ask you if you're one of the ones that is helping Brian keep the landscaping out here beautiful. But those are no small tasks. 
I will not ask you if you're one of the ones that's making sure that the communion table is appropriately spread every Sunday or every time we have it. Every task in the kingdom of God is a good task. It is a right task. There is no such thing as a small task. If your calling is to serve others, then just be the best servant on earth. In fact, Jesus set that example. Think the Last Supper. What did he do? He took off his cloak. He put on a towel. He brought in the water basin, and he washed his disciples' feet. Have you ever washed anybody's dirty feet? Come on now. Some of you have kids, right? They come in all, I mean, and it's not just the feet. If it was just the feet, that's easy. But think about how, anybody ever change a dirty diaper? You know what? And, and, and I'm, I got to brag on my wife. She raised 12 children. And we had other children in our house as well. And we had a lot of dirty diapers. And there were times where neither she nor I were ready to change another one. Because at one time, what did we have, Mary? Five at one time in, in, in diapers all at once? Five out of 12 children? No easy task. And eventually you got to turn to the teenagers and say, would you please take care of that one for me? That's no small task. It's a nasty task. But doing things like that with a servant's heart will help lift up other people's spirits. And oh, by the way, think of the feeling of the child that you just changed and how good they're going to feel. It's a good thing. Even the dirty tasks. Verse 12. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom, notice how they don't mention the names except for the king of Israel, or king of Judah. Just pointing that out. And the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings to live together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. In other words, it's God's fault. So we want you, God's prophet, to do it for us. Now I got news for you, king of Israel. You have been extorting the king of Moab. It's not God's fault all the time. Quit blaming God, Adam. You're the one that gave me this woman. Men, stop blaming the woman. Don't do that. Let me move on. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now... Did he say, bring me a sword? I brought a sword. Yes, it's a real sword. Did he say, bring me a sword? No. Did he say, bring me a... I love this knife. Did he say, bring me a K-bar? You got to be careful with these. I had a gunny one time cut the tip of his finger off without realizing it. Did he say, bring me a K-bar? No. How about a pocket knife? How many of y'all got your pocket knives? Okay. We got a JSO officer back there. Did he say, bring me a taser? No? 
You, can you imagine in the time of Jehoshaphat bringing a taser? That would have sent the armies running. All except the one who's being tased. Wait up, guys. No, what did he say? Bring me a harpist. Bring me a harpist. Now, I got news for you. I got a harpist coming up. You can strum some music for me. You're in the midst of a war. You're about to go into battle. And you say, strum the guitar. Obviously, the prophet is out of his ever-loving mind. Or so he would think. But you know what? I got news for you. The people of God are out of their minds. And they need to be. Why? Because the people of God need to be in God's mind, not their own. The conventional wisdom of today is just wrong. So start thinking from God's point of view. God doesn't think like you and I do. So in a time of need to know the Word of God, well, you know what you need to do sometimes? Play a little music. Close your eyes and get out of your own thoughts. Why? Because in Isaiah 55, he says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So you know what? When somebody tells you, you Christians are out of your mind, you just say, yes, we are. And put on the mind of Christ. And so here's Elisha saying, hmm, got a little music. We're about to go to war. I think we'll prepare for battle. Oh, I got it. Okay, here's what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. I will fight this valley or fill this valley with pools of water. That's your battle. Okay. What? Now, if I was General James Norman Mattis, United States Marine Corps, I would be saying, you are out of your mind. Which, of course, he was. But he said, for this is what the Lord says. They went to the Be careful what you wish for. You go to the Lord for an answer, be ready for the answer he gives you. It's not going to be what you necessarily are going to want. For this is what the Lord says, verse 17. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This, I love this verse, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver you, uh, deliver Moab into your hands. Now, think about that. The easy thing for, the God, for God, of the, the, the Lord of hosts, the creator of the universe, the easy thing for him is to just fill a valley with water. Why? Well, he made it, didn't he? Oh, and by the way, I'm also going to win your battle for you. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin good fields with stones. The next morning, about the time of the offering of sacrifice, I think that's significant, 
There it was. Water flowing from the direction of Edom. And the land was filled with water. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them. So every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other now. To the plunder, Moab! But when the Moabites came upon the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites and destroyed the towns. And each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kir Hereshes was left with its stones in place, but men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great, and they withdrew and returned to their own land. Now, this is something I think is really, it's kind of fun when you imagine it in your own mind's eye. Okay, guys, we're going to get lots of water. Keep your swords handy and go to sleep. Now, are there any other warriors here or former warriors, veterans? I know there are a couple. Okay, you don't have to raise your hands too much. That's all right. On the eve of battle, are you going to go to sleep? No. Your eyes are going to be this wide <laughs> because you're going to be thinking, overthinking sometimes about what's coming up. But what did Elisha imply here? Because everybody was asleep. They're all on the valley. They look like they're lying down dead. Have you ever seen a warrior when he finally is asleep? <laughs> Sometimes he looks like he's dead. Okay? Yeah, but I used to work on the F-4 Phantom, one of the loudest jets in the, in the world. It was a beautiful airplane. Well, there were times where we'd work our rear ends off so hard that when there was a break, we'd go and sit down on the flight line. I would lean up against the landing gear of the aircraft, and one day somebody says, hey, Bags, we're going to... We're going to turn this. I said, okay, that's fine. You know, turning meaning get the engine up and running. They had the engine at full afterburner. I'm still asleep against the airplane. They shut it down. They kicked me in the foot, and they said, hey, we're done. Okay. So when a warrior does go to sleep, he or she is going to sleep pretty hard. But the strategy was God's strategy, not man's strategy. Drink your water. Go to sleep. Don't worry. They're coming. And when they do, they're not going to be expecting you to wake up. They're just going to be expecting with their eyes on the plunder. And here they come. And yet, I love that term, but they failed. And I'm telling you something here and now. I touched on it a bit ago. Never do the same thing twice or never expect that the way that it happened in the past happens again. You see, when Elijah as you know from a previous week, took the mantle and he first met Elisha. He draped it. He didn't give it to him because it still belonged to Elijah. But it's basically saying, I'm calling you. You're mine. 
You, there, I covered your face. <laughs> you belong to me. You are now identified as mine. I'm not going to leave you out. Don't worry. <laughs> and then when it was time for Elisha to pick up the cloak, it fell at his feet and it was his. But he didn't do everything the way Elijah did because it was for a different time. So use the gifts, use the tools, use the talents that God has given you the way God intends for you to use it, not the way that someone else has used it. You notice I did not pick up that guitar and start strumming it. I would have lost my audience. I can't carry a tune in a bucket, but I've got other talents. What they are, I still have yet to discover but I will use what God has given me in the way he has called me to use them. Same thing should be with the rest of you. And bear in mind, the tool is not the way. It is just what is God has put in front of you to use. So just as Elisha was given the, the mantle by Elijah upon Elijah's departure, so Christ has given his mantle to us through the Holy Spirit. Bear that in mind. There's, a, there's that parallel. I'm going to go through some parallels now. There's also unorthodox thinking that's in mind. Think about this. Bring me a harp and get some sleep. That, you, again, that is completely out of your mind. You're not thinking that's how we're going to win battles. But what did we sing? This is how I fight my battles. And oh, by the way, the battles aren't yours. They're the Lord's. So let him help you fight it. And Jesus... You know, look at his miracles. How did he cure a blind man? Muddy eyes in a washing pool. Let me spit in the ground and take some of that and go, bloop, 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 and I'm going to rub your eyes. Who's going to want that to happen to them? Oh, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. Don't, don't take a towel. Just go wash. Go, 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 go. You'll be fine. But he didn't heal the blind men after that in the same way. In some cases, he just spoke the word. But notice how an unorthodox thinking brought about a miracle. Look for the unorthodox. I mean, let's win a battle. Do we need a sword? No. K-bar? Nope. Not even a pocket knife? Nope. Just a harp. Bring me a little piece. Just a little something to soothe my soul so I can listen for what? That still, small voice? Right? So do we need a sacrificial lamb to get a miracle? Not necessarily. How about an overnight prayer session? Hmm. Those are good. But is that required? Not every time. Uh, uh, but an altar call is required every time, right, Brian? No. They are all good. But sometimes all you need is a little mud in, some, in a washing pool. Okay? And God is not just unconventional through man's wisdom. He is often anti-conventional. Okay? God will defy man's wisdom because he uses the foolish things of this world to confound the so-called wise. Okay? One of the other parallels is the provision and the, and the protection, that bigger picture and no small victory. Turn to Mark 2. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. 
and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Moving in for the checkmate. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Psst. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I'm going to tell you something. You have the power to forgive. Jesus gave that authority to you. What I suggest is, Spread it generously. If he gave amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, I would think he wants all of us to be forgiven, don't you think? So what you need to do, I know Pastor Jeff has said this many times. Pastor Brian says it once in a while. I'll give him a little, just a little credit. But if you want to be free for yourself, it's time to forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness. I got a buddy I served. Did I mention I served in the Marine Corps yet? I got a buddy I served with. He and I didn't get along while we were in the Corps. We're good friends now. In fact, uh, when I go up in a few weeks up to Virginia, I'm going to hopefully see him. He was carrying with him, after we both got out of the Marine Corps, a heavy burden that he gave me such a hard time. When we finally reconnected, he sent me a long email about the guilt he had been carrying. And I flatly told him, I forgive you. I had forgiven you way back then. You don't need to carry that burden any longer. So don't even think about it anymore. It's in the past, but it's also forgiven. I forgive you. And I got news for you. I want you to understand something. Please make this in the front of your mind. If you tell somebody, oh, there's nothing to forgive, it's okay. You are binding them. Because you're saying that, well, what you did to me is trivial. No, I got news for you. If they are in such pain because they have wronged you, and they want to be released of that pain, then look them in the eyes and say, I forgive you. And you can even turn and say, I release you of that guilt. You are no longer bound by it. And oh, by the way, you should. Because if you don't, you may still be holding them just a little bit. Don't say there's nothing to forgive. Don't trivialize. Don't minimize the pain that they're in. Release them from that guilt. Another parallel is the only God solutions, as I like to call them. Okay? You could have done it on your own, but I love it. In verse 26, it says, But 
they failed. Why did they fail? Because God anointed the way to victory. Luke 23 says this, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. What has that got to do with uh, Elisha speaking in a time of war? There was another spiritual battle going on, the ultimate spiritual battle. Picture it in your mind's eye. Go back to Genesis where, where God himself, the ancient of days, said, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. At that time, at the time of the crucifixion, Satan bruised Jesus' heel. And he's down on the ground, in the tomb. And there's got to be a 10 count to declare him out. You know how the, the, the referee at a boxing match will go, one, two, right? Okay. Do you know what God did? He said, 10, 9, Eight, seven, six, count with me, five, four, three, two, one, and Jesus rose from the dead and crushed Satan's head. Once and for all, sin has no dominion in your lives because of that one battle that wasn't even yours to fight. Because if it was, you'd have lost. I love the analogy of the little girl allergic to a bee sting, and there's a bee buzzing around, and the dad captures it, and the daughter's happy, but then he lets it go, and the daughter starts freaking out again. Daddy, daddy, daddy! Don't worry, baby. I got the sting. Jesus took the sting from the devil. And now all Satan can do in your life is buzz. That's the power of God. That is the parallel there. That is how God wins battles. And let's have that end outcome where there is no doubt. Verse 18. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He'll also deliver Moab into your hands. Luke 24 says, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The, in, the outcome of what God has done has no doubt at all. It is finished. It is complete. Let him finish that work in you and then you take up that mantle that he put before your feet. Pick it up and do what he's called you to do. It's not going to look right in the eyes of man. As long as you're doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord, you, you, all of you are going to win every single battle. Stand with me. Father God, we love you. We thank you. We adore you. We worship you. 
You have given us the power and the authority, and yet you provided us the victory in all of that. And we pray, Father God, that as we go forth, that every victory will be for your glory and for your honor. And that as the victories come in, all we can do is bow down and say, I was just your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, 